Podcasting from Dallas, Texas, I am Shireen, and this is the Yumlish Podcast. Yumlish is working to empower you to take charge of your health through diet and exercise and reduce the risk of chronic conditions like type 2 diabetes and heart disease. We hope to share a unique perspective and a culturally relevant approach to managing these chronic conditions with you each week. In this episode, Dr. Beth Wyden will be discussing some of the obstacles pregnant people face when they're unable to access nutritional foods and how it affects the baby during pregnancy and after. We will also be talking about the different kinds of programs that can be created to help educate pregnant people in low-income communities. Dr. Beth Wyden is currently an assistant professor at the University of Texas at Austin in the Department of Nutritional Sciences. In her research, she develops and applies advanced analytic methods and interdisciplinary approaches to improve nutrition during the first 1,000 days of life, which is conception to age two, in relation to short and long-term health of pregnant people and their children. Welcome, Dr. Wyden. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. An absolute pleasure having you on. Dr. Wyden, can you tell us a little bit more about your background um, as a nutritional and perinatal epidemiologist? Sure. So I am, <clears throat> am a registered dietitian, and I, um, during my dietetic internship, um, which was um, now many years ago, I learned about research and I uh, got bit by the research bug. And so I pursued training at the National Institutes of Health, where I did a post-baccalaureate fellowship in research um, focused on sleep and weight management. And then I went to UNC Chapel Hill for my doctorate, where I focused on nutrition during pregnancy and infancy among mothers who had HIV and then their babies based in Malawi. Then I went to Columbia University um, in New York City, where I did a postdoctoral fellowship that was interdisciplinary in nutrition and population health. I then um, came to University of Texas at Austin and um, began my research program here. Lovely, and uh, just based on uh, what we were just reading about your profile, will you explain some of the obstacles that you have found in your research when it came to the nutritional needs of pregnant people and their infants during pregnancy and postpartum in specifically in low-income households? So my research has focused on um, pregnant people and infants um, here in the United States, but then also globally in places like Malawi and then also in Kenya and Uganda. And so in all of these places, um, we, we see similar parallels. So we see people facing um, food insecurity where they don't have access to food that they would like or they don't have enough food. Um, we also see that there's barriers to accessing food in terms of just being able to, um, in, in certain places in New York City, for example, people live very far from grocery stores where they can actually purchase fruits and vegetables. Beyond that, we also see really a lot of access um, to things like, for example, um, packaged foods everywhere that are really, really poor in nutritional status. We also see um, 
really easy access to foods high in added sugar and fat, like fritters or French fries, and then also things like fast food as well. So, so we have, you know, the access issue to fresh fruits and vegetables, and then we have really wide access to things that are really not very healthy. And then we have fast food really being available in many places. Um, and then we also, beyond that, there, there's just, you know, nutrition knowledge in terms of actually like knowing what is healthy, but then also um, how to cook food. <laughs> if, if you're trying to cook healthy food, you know, being able to cook and prepare food in a healthy manner is something that, you know, takes time and practice. And so um, people may not also know how to prepare food healthily. And so those are just a few of some of the many obstacles that we've faced. And just to double click on this, what would you say is the main reason it is so difficult for mothers, for pregnant people in low-income households to properly balance their diet um, and have a healthy pregnancy? I definitely think the food access issue that I mentioned before is one of the main reasons. Um, and then also, you know, the high availability of foods that are really not very healthy. But I think um, even beyond that, you know, there's cultural norms just here in the United States where people think that pregnancy is the time to maybe eat for two. And we still haven't really fully gotten over that. So sometimes people think that it's time for, you know, um, for eating whatever they want, for example. Um, but I also think that there's things like food aversions and other sort of cravings that haven't really been studied very much. So some of them come along with, um, with morning sickness or hyperemesis where some people have really strong food aversions and then they also have strong cravings. But that even happens in people who don't necessarily have much morning sickness where they may be craving carbs and things like that that may not be healthy and they may not want things like vegetables or fruit or even protein-rich foods, for example, um, which some people have reported um, in some of our research studies. So I think that is probably the, I think the food access, but then also being able to prepare food, I think is the main issue. Um, for babies, if we want to talk about babies a little bit, which I forgot to mention for Christian too, um, basically there's a lot of confusion about feeding babies and the recommendations have actually changed quite drastically over the past say 15 or so years where basically for example it was recommended that you don't feed your babies egg whites because of concerns about allergy you know about 15 years ago and that has since changed and now it's recommended to feed babies whole eggs early and often um, and so even just that one particular food that is a really you know very nutritious low-cost food has you know, a lot of people still have that notion from either their their um, their mothers or grandmothers or other people in their family who have that knowledge, but then that's not necessarily up to date with the current recommendations for food allergy prevention. And so it's beginning to get out there more. Um, and so this affects everybody, not even low income, not even only just low income households, but there's a lot of just misconceptions about what's appropriate to feed baby. And then once you learn what is appropriate for feeding baby, uh, there's just confusion about how to do it, how to advance, how quickly to advance textures, um, what is a normal varied diet for babies, um, and things like that. We just now, in the latest um, dietary guidelines from the United States, actually have recommendations for feeding 
babies and toddlers. So that is the first time that we've actually had national recommendations for that. And so I think that is also one of the barriers where we didn't really have, you know, strong guidance to go on for providers and practitioners in helping their families feed their babies and themselves. Can you, uh, when you're talking about the recommendations, can you give us some broad strokes ideas? Um, You mentioned the egg uh, example in particular. Can you give us some broad strokes ideas on uh, what that nutritional guidance looks like for moms, for babies uh, in particular? Sure. So so really, you know, um, for, um, I'm just going to focus on, on babies because I feel like the, the guidance for pregnancy is still pretty much, it's similar, or I can actually focus on both. So the guidance for pregnancy is similar for, for adults um, as it is for pregnant people, but there are certain key nutrients that are really important during pregnancy for pregnant people. Um, for moms and other pregnant people. So for example, you know, eating a well-balanced diet with, you know, a variety of fruits, fruits and vegetables is what you're going to hear me say for pregnant people and also for their babies. And it's the same sort of story, but there are certain key nutrients that are really important to focus on during these, what we call critical periods, which during this first thousand days from conception to age two. So for example, one food, or nutrient that's really important to focus on is omega-3 fatty acids and really making sure that the babies haven't babies and pregnant people have enough fatty acids in their diet to promote brain growth in the baby in utero, but then also support the pregnancy and the mom's health and then support the baby's brain growth postpartum. So for example, one particular food where there's also misconceptions about it is fish because of concerns of mercury. And so people often just don't eat fish very much in general. I feel like it's just one of the food groups where people, or one of the high protein foods where people just sometimes just avoid it completely. Maybe because of concerns about smell, but also uh, just because it doesn't smell that great. But also, you know, um, uh, just because of um, the concerns about mercury. And so, for example, um, there, there's ways to, to limit the amount of mercury. So choosing lower mercury food, fish. Um, so for example, um, like dairy. So yeah. su- choosing foods that are really, avoiding fish that are really high in mercury content. So avoiding things like swordfish or shark, but then eating fish that are, you know, lower in mercury. So, um, like salmon or canned tuna or even shellfish, those ones, those particular fish have lower mercury levels. So, so for pregnant people, I think the, the overall dietary pattern is really good. But then when we come to babies, we also want to see, you know, a wide variety of foods. Um, so the recommendations for allergies, for example, so I just briefly touched on eggs, but now it's actually recommended to, to introduce all of these top eight allergens. So fish, shellfish, um, Peanuts, tree nuts, a wheat, wheat, dairy, and eggs, and soybeans. Those are them. Yeah. It's hard to remember all of them because it's a handful. Um, but introducing all of those sort of foods early and often, um, there's not really a particular re- regimen for how often you're supposed to be giving your baby these particular foods, but but providing them early and regularly as part of a diet. A, a, diet that has a lot of variety in it is really important. So other key nutrients during pregnancy and then also infancy include um, iron. So so iron-rich foods are also really important to focus on for pregnant people and then their babies. So during pregnancy in particular, 
um, your blood volume expands quite a bit. And so in order to support that, the recommendations are to take iron supplements as part of prenatal vitamins, but then also to eat a variety of iron-rich foods. And so that could include foods that are source, high sources of heme iron, like beef, for example, or um, foods that are sources of non-heme iron, like spinach or kale or other dark leafy greens. Um, for babies, it's a little bit harder, um, or there's a lot more, um, there's more concerns where people have about giving babies iron, certain iron-rich foods. So there's been, um, you know, there's baby cereals, and so there's baby cereals that are iron-fortified. So there's certain ones like um, rice cereal has actually, um, there's been some current concerns about it due to arsenic um, in the rice. And so what's recommended now is to, you know, not just give your baby only rice cereal as their cereal of choice, but offer a variety of, of iron rich fortified cereals to baby. And then also to give baby iron rich foods that are like sources of heme or non heme iron, um, like beef or spinach or things like that. Um, early and then often through and uh, beans are also another really great food to feed babies um, early and often. Right. And, um, uh... Speaking of these uh, nutritional guidance, um, can you speak to some of the social cultural barriers you found pertaining to nutrition guidance and accessibility? Sure. So thanks for that great question. So a lot of our research really has focused on on trying to um, take what's currently recommended in the guidelines and actually make sure that what we're using for educating our families and working with them to guide them through this period of pregnancy and infancy, a lot of the materials aren't necessarily totally culturally appropriate for foods. So they're very, you know, sort of, you know, centered around like the, the more standard U.S. diet that that's, you know, what we see in the current dietary guidelines for Americans. Where, where, you know, culturally appropriate foods are, are touched on some, but, you know, they're not really featured um, really quite broadly. And so I think that there just might be some confusion about what's actually appropriate in terms of, like, culturally normative foods for different cultures, for example. Other sort of barriers that we've seen, like, for example, you know, the recommendations suggest not giving salt to food to babies when they're young, um, up to a year, but that might not mesh with certain... Um, Latinx cultures where, where it's actually like common and, and like part of practice to actually give babies a little bit of salt in their meals. So, so there's, there's the guidelines not actually being tailored or, or really accessible to like mesh up with culturally appropriate foods. But then also there's things that are just like in practice, one thing, but then recommendation is completely the opposite. And like how to reconcile that is really sometimes unclear. And I feel like providers aren't really trained um, in how to do that. And so that would be more of a cultural competence piece and understanding some of those things that are more... So I think the cultural competency, but then also just like having the guidelines actually being like accessible to be tailored. Like it just does it like, I just feel like there's a, a gap between, and you know, another part that comes into play here. And I think I meant, I, um, um, I think I've talked about this before with several of my colleagues is that we have these methods to measure diet um, in our research programs. And these methods that we use for measuring diet aren't necessarily able to capture the nuance of certain foods in certain cultures. And so, for example, um, 
like we we um, we have a research project where we're where we're working with with lower income Latinx families here in the Austin area and their babies, and we're measuring the diet of these babies. But some of the foods that the babies are eating, like certain empanadas or other sort of stews or soups, just like aren't in our system. And so we can't actually truly measure what they're giving their babies because we don't really we can like put in the ingredients, but it's still not truly capturing like what's actually this like very common culturally appropriate food, um, if that makes sense. So there's research barriers too, in terms of having the methods to assess the diet in these families in order to actually make guidelines and recommendations too. So there's a gap there as well. It, it sounds like these tools aren't set up to incorporate some of those nuances as it stands correctly. Interesting. Mm-hmm. During pregnancy, some pregnant people suffer from morning sickness, and you mentioned the fish earlier. Um, And because of this, they're unable to get the nutrition their bodies need for the baby. What healthy alternatives would you recommend, and would supplements be a better alternative? Thanks for this great question. So morning sickness really, you know, affects people in many, you know, different ways. So some people just have morning sickness in the morning and then others, you know, have it (laughs) continuously throughout the clock, around the clock, which is quite terrible. And so there's, there's several different ways to, you know, ensure that mom is able to support her own nutrition and health and then also support the baby um, with morning sickness. And so really um, there's different strategies to take. And so Basically, healthcare providers sometimes recommend certain types of supplements, and so there's um, vitamin B6 um, and ginger, and then there's some um, some over-the-counter options like Unisim, for example. Um, but other things to do in addition to that are, you know, having um, having small, frequent meals. So basically, like having crackers next to your bed, and uh, and basically before you get up, like eating a cracker, like a saltine or another type, very plain, bland cracker, which is like contrary to what like we think of as dietary recommendations because it's not like a complex carbohydrate with whole grains. Um, so like having crackers or something like that right before you get up just to kind of help quell the nausea before you get out of bed sometimes helps. Also things like mint mint tea or other or ginger tea or things like that um, those are also sort of um, uh, other ways to approach it I think one of the key things with with morning sickness is to you know make sure that that you are eating and like just choose foods that are appealing for you that may be easy to digest so like things that are really bland like bananas or applesauce or toast And then sometimes people like salty foods, like crackers or even like plain tortilla chips. I really think the snacking and getting out of bed before or eating something before getting out of bed really helps quite a lot of people. Um, And then eating really continuously throughout the day. So your stomach doesn't get too full, but then you're also your stomach doesn't get empty because that might actually make the nausea worse. And then paying attention to triggers. Certain prenatal vitamins also can... um, trigger um, nausea or vomiting so like some people just can't handle the huge horse pills and so there might be ways to you know have a gummy sort of vitamin that has most of the nutrients that you need and then like a smaller additional vitamin 
like a slow release iron tablet that you take along with the gummy. Some people have found that to be helpful too. And that's sometimes what I've recommended to, to clients. Um, and then if you're having major, if, if, if someone is having morning sickness and it's really perpetual and they're not able to keep anything down, then make sure that you talk to your healthcare provider um, because there, there may be other drugs and, and, and um, remedies that, that are accessible um, to them, to you after talking to your provider. Got it. And what kind of health programs can be created to help educate pregnant people about nutritional practices during pregnancy and infancy? So um, I really think that that um, effective health programs are really important for supporting pregnant people, pregnant moms, and then their infants on nutrition during pregnancy and then also um, postpartum um, for both for both the pregnant person and then also their baby. And so some types of programs that I think are really great are um, these groups called centering groups where you bring a group of pregnant people together who go to a certain healthcare practice and the OBGYN or the pediatrician, depending on if it's for mom or for baby, you know, has a lesson for that group. And so it's pregnant people at the same gestational age or pregnant postpartum parents with babies of the same age. You bring the group together and you talk about an issue. Um, and then everyone has their like a quick little visit at the end of that program. And so you're able to talk about the issue, but then you can also talk as a group and support each other as well. So I really like these centering groups. Other types of programs that I think might be really beneficial in the future, particularly for people who have high-risk pregnancies or pregnancies affected with conditions where you actually have really challenging dietary regimens, like um, following the gestational diabetes recommendations, for example. I think um, having either remote or even like an app-based program where um, the patient can actually enter in some information and then it can be coupled with their lab values and then that can be used to guide the patient provider conversation. So I think that might be something um, that we might be seeing in the future to support pregnant people and their babies. That is very helpful, Dr. Wyden. Um, with that, we are toward the end of the episode at this point. Can you tell our listeners how they can connect with you um, and then just learn more about your work? Well, thank you so much for having me today. So I um, am on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is Beth Wyden. Uh, and then also folks can reach out to me um, through um, my university website. My lab has a website as well where we talk about our research. And we also have a Facebook group where we post our latest papers and things like that, too. And so um, so feel free to visit us there, like our Facebook groups, and um, we look forward to connecting with you all. It's called Widen Lab, but it has a really long profile now. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, I, I, uh, yeah. Okay. And, what it's, and so what we can do is we can share the website, we can share the Facebook link, um, for the group as well, we'll just put it in the show notes so that folks can access yeah, yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, I don't know why there's not like a name at the end of it. It just has like a long ID number. All good. All good. Okay. Well, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wyden. I really, really appreciate yeah, your time to our, to our listeners. Um, here's a quick question for you. Head over to our social media on Facebook, on Instagram to answer this quick question. Let us know what are some of your healthy habits that you've adopted during your pregnancy or when you were pregnant. What are some of those healthy habits that you adopted? Let's get that conversation going on Facebook, on Instagram. Find us at Yumlish and at Yumlish underscore 
specifically for Instagram. We'll see you there again, Dr. Wyden. Thank you so very much for your time. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Yumlish podcast. Make sure to follow us on social media at Yumlish underscore on Instagram and Twitter and at Yumlish on Facebook and LinkedIn for tips about managing your diabetes and other chronic conditions and to chat and connect with us about your journey and perspective. You can also visit our website, yumlish.com, for more recipes, advice, and to get involved with all of the exciting opportunities Yumlish has to offer. If you like this week's show, make sure to subscribe so you can hear more from us every time we post. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time. Remember, your health always comes first. Stay well.